we are living in an attention economy. And so there are actually, you know, strategies that are striving to take our attention and to keep our attention. So we actually have to fight against it more um, in this technological age than before. But what we attend to very much forms basis of the way we build or atrophy our imagination. I mean, we're surrounded by things every day and we could be paying attention to the flowers and the scents and the smells and, and the small things that are so beautiful, or we could just be attention, paying attention to our phones. I'm guilty. Um, and so uh, we, we have some choice, uh, not only with what we're in and dealing with, but where we train our attention. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Karen Swallow Pryor is one of the leading evangelical writers and commentators of our time. Her new book is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. In this episode, Dr. Pryor and I talk about the role of imagination in the making of meaning. And we talk about what happens when we start to examine the unexamined metaphors that make it possible for us to make sense of the world while also limiting our possibilities for making sense of the world. Karen Swallow-Pryor, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. I'm so excited about your new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you again. Yeah. I guess maybe we'll just start. How do you, when people ask you what this book is about, what do you tell them? Well, the shortest description I can give is it's more Charles Taylor than it is C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Um, Because of the word imagination, you know, that's where people's minds immediately go. But I also recognize that a lot of my readers that in my target audience Maybe they've heard of Charles Taylor, but they, you know, they haven't read him. They aren't familiar yeah. with him. So I, I am a teacher, so uh-huh. I do take time to just sort of unpack and explain, uh, you know, at a lay level, what who Charles Taylor is and why I think his thinking is important, and what the connection is between this very theoretical philosophical idea of the imaginary um, and imagination as we mm-hmm. understand it, and then from there how I see it having affected the evangelical movement for 300 years. Okay. Well, maybe we'll just start with uh, what is, what is the social imaginary? I mean, that's, that's a, such an important idea for Charles Taylor, but it's, but it's not self-evident, right? It's not something that we all know what that means. So maybe let's start there. And and so we've got a social imaginary and then we've got an imagination, which is more of an individual thing. So uh, this this conversation is, it's, we're all set up now. So you start with social imaginary. (laughs) Through the imagination. Well, actually, I'd like to start with one thing before the imaginary. And this came out of a talk I gave recently where someone asked me this and I realized, oh, I wish I'd put this in the book. That always happens. But, um, you know, with my background and maybe a lot of your listeners, um, we have a pretty good understanding of what biblical worldview is or just worldview in general. And that's a lot of my background. I'm a big worldview person. I love, you know, thinking about worldview, teaching worldview. Um, but worldview is very, um, it's very conscious, it's very rational, it's very mm-hmm. articulated and, and deliberate. And, it's a, you know, it's the way we use our, our minds yeah. consciously to think about things. 
the social imaginary is what's sort of underneath the surface. So like if the biblical worldview might be the tip of the iceberg that we see, and the social imaginary, as Taylor describes it, is a precognitive sort of under the surface pool of images, stories, legends, myth, and narratives that drive our desires, our vision of the good life, the way we think things are supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't necessarily think about those ideas and images and stories and beliefs and patterns um, until we stop and kind of try to examine them and see that they're underneath. And that's what I do in this book. And the other important thing is that there's no one social imaginary. There are many of them. And we are affected by many of them. So if we were doing a Venn diagram, it would look very messy. Um, But it really, the difference, the big difference is that these are just sort of the myths and legends and ideas that are underneath the surface that we just carry around with us and and take for granted um, until we start to examine them. Um, uh, I guess it was James K. Smith uh, says that, that much of our, you quote, I'm getting this from you actually, much of our action is acting out a kind of script that has unconsciously captured our imaginations. And I guess yeah. that's, a, that's a nice yeah. summary of what this, a social imaginary is. It's this this idea, as you said, a, a definition of the good life, perhaps, that mm-hmm. um, that we can easily think of as just some sort of bedrock truth, but in fact, it is a constructed. Is that, a, is that a fair way to... Exactly. That is a very fair way. And a really maybe easy example to think about this is, a, and I talk about it in the book, but not quite in this context, but is that the idea of the American dream. We uh-huh. all, if we live in America, we have this idea, lots of others that go along with it, like freedom, justice, the American way, all of those things. But just take the American dream. We might not use that phrase. We not might not be thinking about it consciously, but we have this idea that if we haven't met a certain standard, like bought a house by a certain age or don't have the, have the picket fence or by his, around the house that we've perhaps failed in some way. And, um, or if we do have that, we've achieved something in some way. And again, we don't even have to be consciously thinking about it to realize that this is a narrative or an expectation that we've inherited and it may be good it may may be suitable it may not be but it's just there in the air that we breathe and breathe so much expectation and hopes and desires that again they may be good they may be bad but we have to at least stop and examine them and say you know is, is this what it means to be successful or is this what i need for my happiness um, yeah so that's a good, yeah, good example as you you know say in your book or it, it, it at the very least suggests but i think you're, you're pretty clear about it we think of the our wants as as coming from inside us and we don't really know the extent to which they come from outside us and it's helpful to, to i mean i love boiled peanuts that seems like the most natural thing in the world to me but if i didn't grow if i hadn't grown up in georgia I probably wouldn't love boiled peanuts. And right. you know, what I was, when I went off to college, when I found out that not everybody in the world likes boiled peanuts, it's just kind of a a, a thing that I got a taste for because of of where I lived. Um, it wasn't innate, although it seemed it's still it's still hard for me to believe that that's not just an innate thing that you know that comes from. <laughs> 
No. I mean, imagine the people who love race cars, right? I mean, they're a very small minority of the human beings who've lived on this earth because race cars have not been around for as long <laughs> as human beings have, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, so much has to do with when and where we're born and, and our culture and community. So. Yeah. Um, if a person who loves race cars had grown up in Roman times, I guess they would have loved chariot racing. Is that kind of how that, that works? the horses are a whole different thing from ours you know yeah. I, I am you know i do love horses and uh so yeah so this, i don't even know that, that they're parallel but maybe the the racing part but still it yeah. involves so many other things yeah right um okay so that the social imaginary is a what it's 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 a sort of shared imagination that we don't mm -hmm. Typically, don't think too much about one way or another. It's, it's exactly. like the the goldfish story. You know, the, the one goldfish says to the other, "How's the water?" And the other one says, "What's water?" Right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and um, and then make the connection. If if you maybe say another sentence or two about how that that shared imaginary relates to individual imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is how we, we tend to think about imagination when we do think about it as more an individual thing. Like we all know we have an imagination. We sometimes think about ourselves as having a good one or a bad one or a weak one or a strong one. When in fact, we're using our individual imaginations all the time, mm -hmm. whether we realize it or not. And so, um, so we form an imagination for ourselves. Um, out of many sources, but one of them is this sort of collective pool uh, that I talked about before. And we just may not realize that, um, again, we were talking about desires and appetites. We might not realize that those things that we imagine as being fulfilling or leading us to the good life may be drawn from something much larger than our own individual imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, at one point, you draw a distinction between imagination as mirror and imagination as lamp. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And yeah. only way I think about the imagination is somehow I am reflecting reality. And actually, help me out here. I'm, I'm not doing. A, I may not be. <laughs> yeah. Be qualified to explain the difference. Um, yeah, that's sort of an ancient set of metaphors um, that have been used to talk about the imagination. Um, is that we the imagination can be something that you know, the, that we, we think of as reflecting back on reality, like a mirror or something that sheds light on reality. And it's really both things. Sure. Um, another way of thinking about it is, you know, the old expression we might say does, you know, does art, you know, art imitates life. And then we say life imitates art. There's sort of an interplay between those things. It's not just, it's not just that we um, imagine something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. We imagine based on the things that we have experienced. I mean, they might be something creative that doesn't exist in reality, but it's still drawn from materials um, from our own experience in the world around us. Mm -hmm. And so that there's an interplay um, that I think that metaphor of the mirror. Is yeah. Yeah. Well, you point out that the, um, that our imagination is shaped by the things that we see on in the world around us. And yet what we see in the world around us is shaped by our imagination but and and it is somehow um what i 
the the things we see, it's not just the world's the world's a very big place, and there's more to see than I can than I can see. And yet, and so again, I'm gonna need your help here. The the <laughs> as you said, imagination shapes what we see, what we see shapes our imagination, but also there's some limitations there. Right? I mean, I, I can you can you rescue me here, Karen? I'll help, I'll help you out. Yes, yeah, I can. I certainly can. So two things going on here, I think. I mean, one is you're talking about this part of what I write is, and I and I say this in the book is just the fact that we can do this imagination. We can you, you know, we can we can imagine things that we haven't seen or that we read about or you know that someone tells us about. This is what it means to be human and made in the image of God, who you know we are made in His image. Um, and this creative ability, this imaginative we, ability that we have is a reflection of his nature. I mean, I love my dogs. I spend a lot of time with dogs. I think they're really intelligent and fun and cool, but they aren't sitting around imagining things that I talk to them about. Yeah. Yes, I, I do talk to my dogs. So yeah. there's that element where we have this creative ability. But then, as you mentioned, yeah, we, we have the limitation as well. Um, and the quote that I use to kind of illustrate that which is a famous one, and um, but it's so it's so good as as much of Lewis is so good. But it's that um, passage where he talks about the 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 child, um, you know, offered a holiday at the sea, and he doesn't he doesn't know what that is. He's content with playing with making mud pies in the slum mm-hmm. because he doesn't even know what a holiday at the sea is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in many ways, that's the human condition, right? We cannot imagine um, beyond our own experience or the apparatus, you know, that, um, that gives us that experience. So it's both a creative, our imaginations are both creative and limited in that way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also troubling to think that we, we have, we exercise choice in, in what inputs come into us, right? What information we Mm -hmm. gather, um, and the truth is, and, and you mentioned there's not one social imaginary. There are many social imaginaries, and our our social imaginaries can get in, increasingly polarized. And you know that Venn diagram can can start to spread apart as we, you know, some of us choose to get our information and our our inputs from one place, and others, and we act as if there's no shared reality in which we all participate in or shaped by. Um, that's a little alarming. It is, and this is this is where and why I give some attention. I did not mean to make that pun, but I give attention <laughs> to attention, right? Yeah. Because because we are inundated with information and experiences and sensory experience, all kinds of things, um, and a lot of that we don't have much of a choice about. We have some choice, but. Where we train our attention is where we do have some choice. And we are living in an attention economy. And so there are actually, you know, strategies and formulas and technologies that are striving to take our attention and to keep our attention. So we actually have to fight against it more um, in this technological age than before. But what we attend to very much form basis of our the way we build or 
atrophy our imagination. I mean, we're surrounded by things every day and we could be paying attention to the flowers and the scents mm-hmm. and the smells and, and the small things that are so beautiful, or we could just be attention, paying attention to our phones. I'm guilty. Um, and so uh, we, we have some choice, uh, not only with what we're inundated with, but where we train our attention. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it is odd how easy it is for our attention to be uh, move away from the local into the the mm-hmm. you know, what what's not directly related yeah. to us. Um, yeah. I, as you said, you know, I've got so much going on in my yard right now. Uh, plants growing and squirrels, weeds overtaking, weeds, <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, for some reason, that doesn't. Uh, get as much of my attention as as it mm-hmm. as it could. Um, yeah, and I do want to give a shout out based on what you you know the point you just made to one of my favorite books and most formative influential things I've read early in my adulthood is and that's um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death because he when he talks about the shift what from print culture to what he calls uh, you know, tel- showbiz culture or television culture uh-huh. the, even before the digital age. One of the points he makes is that that the that the the telegraph and the telegram uh, and television were all giving us information from across the world that we couldn't do anything about, yeah. right? That had that, yeah. and so that that changed everything, and that's of course just multiplied with the digital age. So that point about just you know our attention being drawn to things that have nothing to do with what's happening right around us physically or locally um, has. That problem has been around for a while, but it's even worse now. Yeah. Is it Postman who points out before the telegraph, nobody could get information faster than a horse could run? Um, I don't remember that line, but uh, that that sounds like him. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. Since you mentioned Postman, I I did have one question from your uh, from your book when you mentioned you mentioned Postman. And he talks about the idea that. that print culture creates a, a linear sense of time and story. Um, and, you know, and I guess Postman lamented um, that visual media were, were not as, as linear. Am, am I, am I doing an okay job of summarizing that? Yeah, yeah, you are. You, yeah, you are. And, and right. what I didn't understand is that that's, that's assuming that, linearity is more valuable than non-linearity. Right. I mean, yeah, um, yeah right. No, uh, he definitely has a bias toward the word versus the image um, and linearity and rationality versus, you know, the sort of ev- evocativeness of, of images and even words that are not so linear. Um, so, that's personally why I love Postman because he, because I really like what he says. Um, but he's also, he, he admits, you know, he's writing basically a Jeremiah or a polemical. So he, he does, he's is spurring us to kind of, to question the limits of his argument. And yeah. for, that may mean, you know, kind of going the other way and saying, okay, what about images? What about visual right. art? Um, right. Because, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason I ask is I feel like it's an example of, a point you make is that that we um, we to to value, for instance, um, linear rational thinking over other things mm-hmm. is that's part of an imaginary 
too. And, you know, and, and so, I mean, sometimes yeah. we can, it's easy to come to that and go, well, obviously linear, linear rational thinking is better than whatever the alternative is, except that, I mean, we might say, obviously the scientific world is, is more <laughs> real than the theological world. You know, like that mm-hmm. you can say, obviously in front of any of these social imaginaries and sound like, you know, what you're talking about when, <laughs> when what you're really doing is not really thinking through um, the li- some of the larger issues. Yeah, I mean, when you say obviously, you're admitting that you're not aware of the underlying assumptions, right? (laughs) Because it may not be obvious. Um, And this is, you know, this is the gift of, you know, what what some would call and some wouldn't call, but I'll use, I'll call post-modernity, right? If modernity is the elevation of reason and rationality to the expense of the mystical and the phenomenological and the aesthetic, then what makes postmodern postmodern is kind of rejection, rejecting that absolute, um, you know, place that we have given reason. Um, and as Christians, we we know that you know our reason has fallen and it doesn't encompass all of our experience as human beings. It doesn't encompass all of who God is and um, and His divine nature and His is divine intervention in in the world that can't be explained by reason. Um, And so we are, all of these things are important. And that's, I think, the state, kind of the stage uh, where our world is going, our thinking is going now, and our social imaginary is shifting along with it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned modernism. You point out that there are some, some, um, Simultaneous developments, um, you know, that that we may think of evangelicalism as somehow um, opposed to modernism. But the truth is, it's an outgrowth. You make the case mm-hmm. and you're not the only person to make the case that it's an outgrowth that it, it came from modernism. So the Enlightenment evangelicalism, I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time defining evangelicalism, but I'll leave that to you. And and maybe a new vision of, of, a, of the imagination are all a, a kind of given authority to the individual that mm-hmm. is it's, it's not a coincidence that these, all the, you know, these things right. came along simultaneously. So can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah. And, and, you know, just for the sake of listeners, I do spend quite a bit of time sort of defining evangelicalism right. as scholars have, because that's, you know, kind of a, a contested and uh, question that people have. And so th- the sources are in there, but for the purpose of what you're just you, the way you're directing the conversation now, you've already said it. So evangelicalism really is an emphasis on the individual, you know, individual salvation, individual relationship with Jesus, um, individual faith. Um, and that is very much an outgrowth of the Enlightenment um, and, and is a reflection of modernity. Uh, for good and bad. And that's kind of the point that I'm making. I mean, I do believe in individual conversion, salvation, and relationship with Jesus. But again, the, even these things take place within uh, a community, within a social imaginary. Uh, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We are part of a church body. Uh, and so, um, so even with this emphasis that evangelicalism has had on the individual, which is a direct reflection of modernity. Um, it's it's limited, uh, just as modernity is. Yeah. So, I, I think this may be a, a, a 
good place to shift to the idea that a social imaginary or any sort of metaphor elucidates and gives us a new way of seeing and understanding important truths, but more or less by definition then casts other aspects of reality in the shade. Yes. Um, yes. So that again, that's not a uh, a self-evident truth that mm-hmm. might require a little explanation. I think it might be helpful to listeners for, for you to sort of expand on that idea a little bit. Yeah. And also so talk about where the, that leaves us. Does that mean we, we <laughs> stuck with, you know, not knowing, but not having a very partial view of what's real. So. No, yeah, well, let's, let's just go right to the big questions. Right. I mean, <laughs> that, that is, that is a big question, but um, so, I mean, if, if we start with the understanding that all language is metaphorical in the sense mm-hmm. that all words are, you know, signs for something else. And that's why we have, not just usually one definition of a word, but several definitions, and those yeah. definitions change over time. Um, so even when, so, we words words are metaphorical, and then the metaphors we make from words are even more metaphorical. <laughs> We're getting very meta here. Yeah, um, right. And so, it to just recognize that human language is powerful and wonderful. It is 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 limited and changing, and so are metaphors. Um, whenever we say something is like something else. Um, then we are drawing attention to certain things. Again, going back to attention. So, you know, Robert Burns, my love is like a red, red rose, newly sprung in June. My love is like a melody, sweetly sung in tune. You know, beautiful little poem. And it brings out so many ways in which love can be like these things. But obviously it leaves out some things too. Um, And so if we walk around with that tune in our heads, as I obviously do, um, (laughs) you know, it just, it just, again, it becomes part of my social imaginary thinking about what love is like and to balance it out or fill it out. I need other metaphors as well. Um, And that's why we talk about oftentimes like dead metaphors or cliches um, and how they are, um, we should avoid them, whether in our writing or thinking, because They've been used so much that they lose their power to evoke what they were supposed to, but they also perhaps leave out so much. Mm. Um, and so metaphors are, are are powerful until they become overused and dead. And then we use need new metaphors, but um, they also need to be true and um, you know you know reflect reality, um, yeah. which again is the big question. Yeah. Yeah. You think about the ways we we bring our, you know, I mean, e- even that example there, if my idea, my love is like a red, red rose, if I, if, if I take that too seriously and then I see God is lovely, okay, now I know what God is like. And we have this tendency, I think, to to bring our very limited mm-hmm. notions of, of what reality is. And, and, you know, I know what authority is. I think the Bible is authoritative. Therefore, the Bible must be authoritative in a way that I have Mm-hmm. In my mind, what authority is supposed to look like, you know. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, and it, and so that word, you know, we we can agree that the Bible is authoritative, but then we have to start unpacking. Like, okay, so what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? How is someone else understanding and applying that in a different way than than I do? And that's why, yeah, you know, that's why we have so many mis- misunderstandings on the on the internet, right? Because yeah. so many people assume that we all mean the same thing when we use use a word rather than having a discussion about what we really mean. Um, and, you know, it's just not to say that that language is, you know, 
has has no power and can convey no truth or that there is no truth, but just simply that we are limited creatures using a limited la la language differ among people. So, um, so you know, even even the word love, to use another example, I mean, um, it is handled a lot better in the biblical Greek than it is in English because we only have one word to cover yeah. a lot of different kinds of things that we mean when we talk about love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to expand on the idea of metaphor, as you say, a lot of times we're using metaphors and aren't aware that we're using metaphors. And so mm -hmm. if we speak about a person, uh, I'm getting this straight from your book, someone being fun, you know, humans, the way humans function, you know, a high functioning mm -hmm. person or a low functioning person, um, that is a metaphor of machinery. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, it's not a disaster to use the word functioning with regard to people, but but it's helpful to to back up and say that when I'm using this word, I am I'm talking about those parts of, of our humanity that are a little bit like a machine. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was a friend of mine who has a daughter with um, a disability who, who I'm quoting in that part. Um, you know, again, as you said, it, it's we can use that metaphor because it does. Um, illuminate something, but it might not be the best and it might be dehumanizing. But the most important thing is we have to recognize that it is a metaphor yeah. and that we are saying, we are saying in this context that a person is like a machine. And so many of our metaphors in this modern age about ourselves as human beings and our relationships are drawn from, you know, technology, from science, from machinery, and we don't even realize it. Um, and that's when we have, that's what we need to, to think about. What, what are, what are our under, what underlying assumptions do we have and do we develop when we use these kinds of metaphors? Yeah. Um, it's probably, I can't remember which of, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's, but probably the, probably the discarded image where he talks about the idea that, you know, we think it's kind of quaint that, um, that the medievals, Thought, they explain gravity by you know the the apple wants to be on the ground and that's that's its true home and it moves to, whereas fire's true home is up so it moves up and that's that all seems kind of quaint what we know is that uh apples are just obeying the law of gravity um and as if obeying a law is less quaint an <laughs> the idea that an apple can obey a law is less quaint than um than the idea that an apple you know has a desire um and uh, it's it's helpful for us to recognize that this isn't it, you, people used to speak metaphorically and now we don't. It's that we just have some new some new metaphors. Right, it's different metaphor, different metaphors. Right, right, right. Obeying a law is a is a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that it's, example. Yeah, he says as if as if uh, physical objects were citizens now that that could obey. Right, right. <laughs> could obey a law. Obedient, okay. dutiful citizens. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, Whereas we can rebel against the law, apples always obey. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a, a a a couple of lines from your book if you don't mind. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of podcast hosts let their guests read their own stuff. Not me. I, I read their stuff to them. Uh, oh no, that's yeah. delightful. Yeah. So I, I I think this is. I'd love to hear you expand on this idea uh, because I think it's very relevant to writers. Um, you say to discover similarities, to find connections once unseen, comprises some of the holiest work we can do as human beings, for it is a work of reconciliation. 
But this truth also entails the obverse. Making wrong connections can be as dangerous as attaching the wrong cable clamp to the wrong battery terminal. Uh, nice use of metaphor there. Um, but uh, there are two really interesting, I mean, at least two really interesting ideas there. One is that that making connections, um, which is what we do with the language, is some of the holiest work. It's an, It's the work of reconciliation, unless you get it wrong, and then you are doing mm-hmm. worse than mm-hmm. you know you're doing real damage um i mean i i i've spent a lot of time thinking about how how great it is that storytellers get to sort of shape people's you know shape so many things about people and but then have only recently done a lot of thinking about how dangerous mm-hmm. the wrong kind of stories are mm-hmm. um how divisive yeah how- you so. That's that's a mouthful right there. No, no, exactly. I mean, so so to use a very simple example. Well, it's not simple, but I think it's you know pretty relatable. Um, I said earlier that you know the human beings are made in the likeness of God. Um, Christians believe this, and so it's very important to figure out in which ways we are like God, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and in which ways we are not Him and yes. not like Him, right? Yeah. And so, like, there's so there's so much. It's so important to understand how we are, but so much destruction and chaos and evil that can happen when we find likenesses that aren't true. So that would be one one simple example. Um, Another is just, you know, I do think that there is, oh, I've never really tried to articulate this, or I'm not sure I even thought it before, so bear with me, but um, because God models for us in you know, the personhood and the sacrifice of his only son himself. Um, I do think there's something overwhelmingly um, conciliatory about him. I'm not a universalist. I'm not going there. But there's just something about his nature that is more inclined toward reconciliation and and bringing back, um, as well as separating out, you know, light from dark and good from evil. Um, So, you know, it seems like that is more our call as, as we reflect his likeness is for us to find the right likenesses. And yet the world we live in today is seems so much more characterized by the polarization and the fracturing and the differences. Right. Yeah. Um, we all see the destructiveness of that, I think, right now. And so it just seems like a, a time when we might just stop and think about how much more we need to find the likenesses with each other with god with you know love and a red red rose you know the the things around us the way that we can see god in reflected in his creation and in one another um that just feels like the call for us right now at least it feels like the call for me yeah yeah the the whole um essence of metaphor is recognizing that that the parts of the world rhyme with one another um and uh that even um and, and I, I agree with you that, that some of the the holiest work we can do is to say here's here's where things rhyme and mm-hmm. here's what we share um and not just here's how i can <laughs> exert my power uh mm-hmm. using language um uh, i, I make sure i'm Go yeah, ahead. no, I was. I just love the metaphor of rhyme because, um, 
you know, harmony. There's so, so many areas we could look at the, 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 the way different disciplines bring things together and rhyme is one way, harmony is another, um, balance, um, you know, symmetry. Those are all sort of the traditional um, classical qualities of beauty. And, um, yeah. and they point, that points to God. Yeah. yeah. Well, Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.